God is really specific when he speaks into your life that he speaks things that are transformative and that are really connected to where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. He's a really accurate author. He's a really intentional speaker. Uh, and I, I don't have the luxury of speaking the way the Holy Spirit speaks or the way God speaks to you. When I speak, I speak to everybody that's in the room, and I speak in a way that I, I, I'm faithful to what God is saying, but, but God does this really amazing thing. When I'm preaching and speaking, he will draw your attention to things that are really transformative and personal to your journey. Have you noticed that? So I've noticed that I don't have that luxury where I can, like, speak, but then I can also speak to all of your minds through some kind of, like, power like Professor X. I don't have that ability, uh, so I, I speak, but God speaks really accurately. All that to say this because we're doing a mountaintop theme, and today we're going to talk about obedience in the valley. Uh, obedience in the valley. And But before I do that, I actually have, um, I, I'm on Pinterest a lot, and, uh, and uh, I, uh, I, I see quotes on there. And so I want to read you guys a quote they make me laugh a lot, and then some, some of my friends, they'll notice that I'm on Pinterest for like an hour because I'll send them like a bunch of quotes that whole hour. Uh, some funny and some meaningful, and I've got two quotes I'll be talking about today from Pinterest or I'll be referencing. The first one's funny, and it said, I'm so glad I learned about parallelograms instead of how to do taxes. It's really handy this parallelogram season. And uh, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today, but I thought it was really funny, and I've been seeing all these Intuit TurboTax commercials, and I've been dreading taxes coming. Does anybody like taxes, doing their taxes? Tana, put your hand down. What is... <laughs> she ruined the survey. Uh, so uh, obedience in the valley. If I, uh, I, I've been wrestling with a little bit of cough and sickness for about 10 days, so uh, if I cough at all at any given point, it's, it's not my fault. Um, but I, I'll probably be going to the doctor at some point here this week. We'll see if my body could just beat it, if my will alone can just beat it. Uh, we're still testing that theory out. Um, but if you want to turn your Bibles to where we'll be, we'll be mostly in Exodus 20. And then we will be dabbling on a lot of different scriptures all the way through like 30 um, but it, it, it's not as much as it sounds. The story of Moses uh, and the Israelites at Mount Sinai um, is actually over like a lot of chapters because they also include all of the laws that God gave to Moses while he was on the mountain. So there's a lot of writing, but it's actually not, <coughs> it's actually not that long of a period of time that we'll be covering and so it's going to be a really significant how we see this interaction of how Moses, another mountaintop experience, really incredible. And actually the Israelites in the valley kind of also got to experience uh, the mountaintop experience. And so, but we also see this, this place of failure when Moses was on the mountain and the Israelites, which many of us I think remember the story, uh, they decided to persuade Aaron that it would be a good idea to make an idol uh, a golden calf, and brought all their jewelry together. So we're going to also see what it, what it looks like to, to have this obedience or this commitment to the revelation of God when you're not in the middle of an encounter. And I think this is where it gets really interesting because we have this, this culture where encounter is a part of our language. Uh, if you've been a part of church culture for any significant amount of time, you've probably heard of, an, uh, of a church or a conference called Encounter. 
you've probably said to yourself, man, I had an encounter with God and it was great. It was awesome. Maybe it was at a conference. Maybe it was at a retreat. Maybe it was in a worship session. Maybe it was in like a sermon that was just like perfect and your life, it kind of all like culminated to this encounter. And all of us have known and experienced encounter. And in addition, all of us have experienced the difficulty that happens when you go from, okay, I had this encounter and then trying to actually see transformation happen. And so the, the hurdle between revelation and transformation is profound. And God revealing himself to us is not the same thing as us being transformed into the image or the idea that he revealed to us. Have you experienced this in your life? Your revelation was greater than your transformation? Have you realized this? <laughs> Revelation, when it's greater than transformation, it really should provoke an introspection of what's going on. Why do I know this much about God and his nature, and I look only like this? So when there's a distinct contrast between the amount you know about God and the amount you look like God, you should pause. You should take a moment, you should write down some questions. Why do I know more than I am? I think this is actually because we live in like a luxurious Christian culture. The American Christian culture has this blessing and benefit of having deep, revelatory, transformational concepts introduced all the time. You can walk away from this place and you can listen to sermons, good ones, nonstop until next Sunday. There is that much there is that much teaching and that much rich teaching and word out there available to you. Just do a quick internet search and you'll find hundreds of hours spanning over 60 plus years of sermons and written in audio and video of sermons and ideas and YouTube stuff and different streams and churches and yada, 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 yada and in different language. And you can have hundreds of hours of incredible concepts and word delivered to you. So we have this rich luxury where we're like, that's an amazing idea, I love it. And before we become it, we're on to the next really cool idea that will give us that light bulb feeling about a concept of God, right? Is this, are you guys tracking with me? Now fueling yourselves with more ideas of who God is without transformation is neglecting the humbling experience of transformation. Idea, 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 never becoming the idea that's introduced to you is just knowledge added. And knowledge in and of itself is not transformative. There's another ingredient that is required to be introduced to the journey for knowledge to become transformation or your reality of who you are. All right, so we're going to jump into the word here and we're going to notice that there is a big difference between encounter and transformation. And the Israelites, this is really soon after they got out of Egypt. So all of Israel, and a note on who they are here, all of Israel still very much is a slave in mentality. This is an important note and observation that Israel, while they are no longer enslaved, as far as their mentality is concerned, they still very much have slave mentality. And we're going to observe this and we're going to see it, and that's important for a reason. 
But I want to remind you of a scripture I shared last week where God gave to Moses this promise when he was at the burning bush, and this was before he walked into Egypt and delivered the Israelites, and he said to him, do you remember what he said to him? He said, you shall serve God on this mountain. So he made, he made a promise to him that go and do all these things, and I promise you, you will serve God on this mountain with everybody that you bring out of Israel. And so now, you might not realize it because the Bible does this funny thing where it calls it Mountain Horeb, also Mount Sinai. Basically, historically, these are the same places. That's important to know. Some think that Horeb is the mountain range and Sinai is the specific mountain, and that others believe it's vice versa. The end of the story here, without getting into all the complexities of it, same place, right? So now all of a sudden, Israel's at the foot of this mountain that God said to Moses, you'll bring them back here and you're going to serve me. So there's a significance here that's really important to understand about this journey that Moses is like, this is the place that's going to happen. This is the place that God is going to cultivate and create transformation in the people that he delivered. Wow, cool, awesome, that's fun. So Exodus 20, 18 through 21. Now, there's this interesting thing that happened where Moses would go on to Mount Sinai and he would experience the presence of God in a more direct way. But all the Israelites on the bottom of the hill or the bottom of the mountain, they would see the outcome or the dynamic of the presence of God. So this is what's happening here. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, don't fear, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Okay, this is encounter. And this is a significant place of encounter. But there's this reality that we've got to understand is that we encounter God in a way that's way beyond what we actually are. And when we encounter God, it's meant to create an obedience to a standard that doesn't exist in our life yet. So here's the reality is that the Israelites had not yet expressed the standard that God had for them in covenant. Like literally before this chapter was the story about how Jethro said to Moses, hey, you actually need to do this differently. You just sitting here and judging every matter is not good. There's two things you need to do. You need to actually write it down and make it clear to everybody what the law is. And the second thing you need to do is you need to delegate some of the judgment to others who have proven themselves test or trustworthy. So Moses has this understanding where the progression of clarity of who Israel is supposed to be in covenant with God is happening now. See, I like this because it says to us about our personal journey something I think is really profound. That when God causes freedom in your life, that's not the same thing as his covenant expression being established in you. Maturity comes after freedom. Maturity and freedom are not the same thing. That you've been freed from bondage and maturity comes when you begin to recognize what the standard of God is and choose it above that which you knew before you were freed. So freedom and covenant expression are so different, it's amazing how different they are. 
and we could be freed. We can have an encounter where we truly feel, like the pastor said, hey, come up here if you want to be freed from pornography or addiction or fear or whatever it may be. And you walk up there and you just break and you have this incredible encounter with God. You get saved and you're like, I am free to dance, you know, and you're singing the song. And everyone's super excited and elbowing each other at the altar and in the crowd. And everyone's like, oh, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And you really are in that moment. You really are. But, but, but freedom and maturity or being that which you are experiencing and encounter are really different. So that's why you can walk away and then just kind of forget even who you are. You were a hearer, but you weren't a doer. You encountered God that brought you out of Egypt, but then you got to Mount Sinai and you made a golden calf for yourself, which was really a practice. They, it was a practice in Egypt to make idols like that. So, so they were just acting in a way that was actually very common to them. It's very much like an addict coming in here, experiencing God, throwing their addiction on the altar, whatever it may be, pornography or drugs or whatever, and then walking out and, and truly feeling free, but then all of a sudden, two days later, because they haven't encountered God again, they go back to smoke and they go back to whatever the addiction may be. And it's the same thing for any of our behavior that we recognize isn't like God, and yet we go back and we go away after an encounter of saying, never again, never again, I'll never do that again. And we hit this mountaintop euphoria and confidence, and we're like, oh, I am so strong right now. I'm going to crush it in the valley. It's going to be no problem at all. I'm going to get down there, and we're going to crush it. We're going to be amazing. Yeah, I know. I, know, I won't feel God always like this as an emotion. But when I get in that valley, I'm going to crush it, man. I feel so strong. Come on, Goliath. What's up? Let's go. All of a sudden, you get off the mountaintop. And there's something that I really think is significant about what happened here. And all of a sudden, the Israelites and the reason they made the fatted calf, I want to draw your attention to it because I think it's really important. That there's a reason they failed. And I think it's a reason why a lot of us fail after a mountaintop experience. And, and, if, and if you go to Exodus 32 verses 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. All right, so here's the context. Moses, they, they witness this encounter, this experience, and then Moses gets called back up to the mountain after God told him uh, the Ten Commandments, gave him basically the, the verbal, the audio book on it. And now Moses had to go back up and he had to get the written. And God literally transcribes with his finger, the finger of God. It's actually incredible. The story is insane. I encourage you, it's eight chapters, so I can't read it all to you right now, or a little bit more, actually, ten. I encourage you to go back and read it. It's actually just incredibly outrageous what happened. Like God transcribed the law on, on stones. And the law is really long, so they must have been big stones or something. But, <coughs> but it's incredible. And so that's the context. This is the context is Moses goes back up to the mountain, and it takes a while. It actually takes seven days for God to show up again. And his presence to show up again. And when it did, Moses went into the cloud. And then he got this incredible encounter for like the next 33 days. Meanwhile, all the Israelites are at the bottom of the hill. And they think to themselves, okay, I think Moses is probably dead. Look, and think about it from their perspective. That hope, hope was snuffed out. Hope was snuffed out. Why was hope snuffed out to them? Well, Moses was their symbol of hope. 
Moses was the one that out of nowhere came out of the desert and then brought a staff and brought signs and wonders and pulled them out of Egypt. This was not a community culture-wide transformation. This was the power of a man that was obedient to God that cultivated freedom. So there's something really important about this. When somebody else is your voice that led you to freedom, if that person is removed from influence in your life, there can be this dangerous thing that happens where hope gets snuffed out. Hope gets snuffed out. And what happens when hope gets snuffed out? You begin to resort to your old strengths and old ways of doing things. You begin to, and now in our modern era, in our digital era, you begin to listen to a high volume of that person's sermons. Have you noticed this trend? Somebody got struck by a sermon that someone spoke, and then all of a sudden they need to go through the whole library. It becomes their daily bread. Have you noticed this trend? I have. But when you see this, it's because that person is a symbol of freedom and a symbol of transformative power in their life. So what happened here? Well, the idea that that was snuffed out was actually profound. Look, they came to the conclusion. They saw Moses was delayed. They saw what happened on the mountain. Fire, smoke, thunder, lightning, loud sounds like a trumpet. They're like, oh. After like 30 days, they're like, oh, Moses is dead, obviously. No one's going to make it through that. Moses is dead. So the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said this to him. Up, make us gods, little g, who shall go before us. All right, this is really important. Gods that shall go before us. What were the Israelites looking for? They were looking for leadership. They were looking for somebody to continue to progress them on the journey that they started coming out of Egypt. You know what's really interesting is it sounds like to me they intended to go in the direction towards the promised land that they were supposed to go, but they were just trying to use old means of strength to get there. It's the same thing in our Christian journey. We're like, we still believe in the promise, but we haven't really seen another way of doing it. So we're going to resort to old strengths to try and get to the promises of God. I know it's not really technically good that I should have selfish ambition to build the kingdom of God, but it's all I've got right now, so I'm going to use it. I know technically I really shouldn't use anger to make it through this thing and bitterness, but you know what? It's the only thing helping me to survive. I know I shouldn't really be building the kingdom by trying to compete and compare myself to others, but you know what? It's worked up to this point. It's helped me out so far, and you know what? It's all I know. It's all I know. And this is what's happening with the Israelites. We look at it and go, what a dumb idea. Because creating an idol for us is a stupid idea. Like, when was the last time you made an idol in your life? (laughs) When was the last time your buddy made an idol in your life? You know what I mean? Like, it's not really culturally prominent for us to take all of our gold, which is what happened here, and go, you know what? You know what sounds like a good idea for us to have leadership confidence and a vision of our life, of where to go? Is we need to make an inanimate object. (laughs) See, that's foolishness to us. But to that culture, that was as smart, (laughs) well, that was as good of an idea as reading a self-help book. That was, that was as practical 
as like going to the gym and exercising. That's like what you did when you needed direction. That's what you did when you needed comfort. You made something you could look at, you could touch, you could feel, and that's what you did. So we don't really relate to that specific failure of faith. But I bet you if we looked for a moment at what our failures of faith are on the road to the promises of God for us, we could observe some decent patterns in our life. Could you observe those? And we could observe some decent patterns of disobedience, of lack of faith, of hard-heartedness. We could observe some sinful patterns. We could observe things that were like, you know what, I still believe in God and the promise of God, but I don't really know how to do it the way he would do it, so I'm going to do it the way I know how to do it right now. And this is so challenging. And what is the alternative besides doing what you know how to do? Because what I find interesting here is the Israelites were in this really interesting waiting, holding pattern that I think a lot of us experience in our life where we've encountered God, so we've encountered the spirit of freedom, the spirit of what we ought to be, but we have yet to truly get the pragmatic on what this actually means. So you get into worship, you get into these places of encounter, and God's like, you are pure. And when he says it to you and you experience it, you're like, yeah, yeah, I am. But then meanwhile, you've had all these coping mechanisms that when you get, when you get, anxious, when you get tense, your coping mechanism is to lust and is to have those sexual gratifications. Or maybe you get into a place of fear again and your coping mechanism is to eat. Or maybe it's to lie. Or maybe it's to cheat. Maybe it's to steal. I don't know what it is for you, but I do know this, that when you are introduced to a new spirit or a new standard of how to do it in spirit, there is this lag often that exists between that encounter and it being covenant expression. And when you lack the pragmatic way to be like God, choose not to be like who you used to be. Even if it means that there's an absence of expression. What did the Israelites have? They had this gap between an encounter and the clear words on who they were going to be. What happens when you have an encounter and a gap between the clear words on what you're supposed to be? Like actually, actually having it taught to you. Like, okay, here's the instruction of it. Here's the alternatives to you. So God said this to you. That's so cool. Now this is how to do it. So between the encounter and the how-to, will you be faithful to wait Will you be faithful to continue to say no to what you've known and look for something that you have yet to find? Are you comfortable with this tension, with this anxiety that exists between, man, I don't even know what to do, and that lasting for 30 days? I don't know what to do. That's like, that's where they were. 30 days of, hey, you've seen me, and you know some difference coming, but why don't you wait for about 30 days and we'll see what's up. How many of us at like day two would just be like, you know what, dude, I got some bills to pay. I got stuff to handle. I can't just wait around. Let alone day 30, 30, a holding pattern of nothing, a holding pattern of, well, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to wait. How challenging is that? How challenging is it to think of 
between encounter and transformation is just saying no to all of your old ways and not even knowing what you're saying yes to yet. Well, this is the, this is the part where God is the mystery being revealed to me. Is He's maybe not a mystery to me in the way he is to you, so maybe I know exactly what you're supposed to do now. But he's a mystery to you still in that way. And the same thing happens to me. Is There's a mystery to me that he may not be to you. But it's still very mysterious to me how I should behave. I haven't ex- been exposed to that part of the law yet. There's eight chapters of the law. There's eight chapters of the law that they had yet to been exposed to. Eight chapters. How crazy cool is that? So between us experiencing God, because he's a really gracious and loving God, so we experience him way beyond what we know how to do. We experience his love, his purity, his holiness, way beyond our standard, way beyond what we're actually expressing right now. And that's really cool. That's really beautiful. I believe it gives a really good spotlight into what some of the challenges are when we experience God, we have this encounter of God, this revelation of God, and the gap between that and transformation. And the first point I want to make on it, which I think I've been making, is that a lot of it is just saying no to who you used to be. That's it. I wish it was a little bit more like a, of an exchange. Like, you know, when you trade something with somebody on offer up. I wish it was a little bit more like that. Like, you know exactly what you're exchanging. An iPhone 6S Plus for a, for a little 50cc dirt bike or something like that. You know, I wish it was exactly like that. You're like, oh, cool. I'm going to trade addiction for this exact thing here. But it's not quite that straightforward linear. You're like, I'm going to trade my addiction for God. And then if I ask you two questions after that, okay, what does that mean? You're like, I don't know. I just had an encounter with God. I know God is good. I know God wants something for me. I don't know what it looks like to have an exchange of my behavior of addiction for his behavior. I don't know what that means. I don't even know what that looks like. Like, if God is, like, if I go to the altar and God's like, okay, your language is going to be my language. And I have this encounter with God, and when I have it, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is so cool. I feel God. Do you feel God? Like at Daniel, I go, do you feel God? And I'm like crying, you know, like you've seen somebody, and it's just like, they're like, they got the goosebumps. They're like, look at my arm, it has goosebumps. I love it. It's so good. God's so good. And then, you know, you meet with maybe a mentor or leader, and they're like, okay, so what does that mean to you? You're like, I don't know. I think it means all of my words are going to be God's words. And then just two questions in. Just two questions in, and I bet it gets complicated. Okay. So do you never speak until God speaks something to you? Huh. Well, that's a good question. Okay, cool. So do you only speak in Scripture? Yes. (laughs) Okay, what about the Holy Spirit? Can he speak something to you and then you speak it? Yes. Okay, now, do you have to check and make sure that whatever the Holy Spirit was speaking to you, do you have to check that with Scripture and make sure it's in Scripture? Yes. All of a sudden, there's, there's a, you don't know. Like, you're like, I don't know. Am I allowed to speak freely? Am I, am I allowed to make a joke? Am I allowed to make fun of the Packers or the, the Ravens? You know what I mean? 
Or is that a violation that God is no longer speaking through me and my language is no longer his language? Like, does God make fun of the ravens? Like, you know what I mean? Just that simple idea. Is God cynical at times? Can I make jokes about people? Like, you know what I mean? Like, real questions, right? Like, if my language is supposed to be God's language, I got a lot of questions, and I, need, I really got more questions that go way beyond the encounter and that begin to flesh out what this encounter actually was. So when God says, my language, your language, that's the encounter. Now, the expression of it takes time. It's a process of me saying no to making fun of the ravens. It's a, it's a process of me saying, the Bible says, let no idle words proceed from your mouth. It's a process of me saying no to idle words or maybe crass humor. It's a process of me saying, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and when you say no, something is illuminated in truth that the encounter was intended to establish. So you're like, why am I saying no to this, God? Why am I saying no to crass humor? Everyone else does it, but why am I feeling convicted and saying no to this humor? And then he begins to teach you why. He begins to show you in scripture why. God, why am I not allowed to do a little white lie? I'm feeling convicted on this. You told me my language, your language. So why can I not just kind of budget? It makes it easier. They're not, their feelings aren't hurt. I don't have to deal with it for the next two days. Why can't I be a little bit dishonest or maybe just budge the truth? And then God reveals to you why. Speak the truth in love so that we may grow into Christ, into the head, which is Christ. Ephesians 4. All of a sudden, when you begin to ask questions about what that encounter meant and was intended to establish in your life, you begin to realize what is error and what is truth, what is light, what is dark. You begin to realize what is sin, what is righteousness. And all of a sudden, that encounter, which was intended to create transformation, actually has place in your life because you carry it every single day for the next 30 days, the next 40 days, and you ask yourself questions. God, I want to make a gold-fatted calf right now. So should I? Is that a bad idea? And he's like, yeah, bad idea. And you're like, okay, so I need to make progress towards your promise. So if I can't do it by making a fatted calf, how do I make progress? And all of a sudden you realize that while you're trying to make progress, it's not really about you getting to the promise of God. It's that you're afraid of failing. It's that you're afraid that the Egyptians are just going to look at you and go, oh, they escaped Egypt just so they could die at Mount Sinai. These people are a joke. Their God is nothing. And they can't even make progress past Mount Sinai. They would have been better off staying here. You leave a job because God called you to start a business and all of a sudden your business is failing and you have this fear that you're being judged by the people that you left. Sometimes after an encounter is this real place of challenge. Like God said something, you're experiencing an encounter and between that and transformation is a whole lot of you having to deal with embarrassment and fear that already existed inside of you. A fear that you can't make it without your slave owner. A fear that your progress and your success is not going to be better than when it was in bondage. 
They literally said this at many different points. They were like, we would have been better off in Egypt where at least we had buckets of meat. You know you're insecure when you believe your highest point of success is in bondage. You're like, my fear, my fear, my bondage was actually successful. So if your terms for success in walking with God are always determined by whether or not you're making progress in a way you want to make progress, then you're going to fail a lot. Because progress with God is not literally I'm walking forward now and now, cool, awesome. Sometimes progress with God is wait for 30, 40 days for my word to be delivered to you. And all the time you think you lost in that wait, you will gain exponentially because his words are true. His words are good and they are powerful. And whatever progress you think you're losing because you're walking with God, you're going to gain exponentially and that's just the reality of it. And the reality is, is the only way to the promised land of God is by his word that makes a way for you. So if you deviate from his words and you live by what you've known, which is old words, you're only going to get old results. So when you live by your pattern in Egypt, you're going to have a culture of slavery and bondage. When you live based on the old way that you lived before your encounter, you're going to get the outcome of your old way. You'll only get the outcome of God if you live by the encounter you had on the mountaintop and you stay committed to it in the valley. Obedience in the valley is the process and the mechanic of transformation of that which you experience in an encounter with God on the mountaintop. You see him on the mountaintop, you become him in the valley. Feelings aren't really a great author to become like God. You ever notice this? Feelings don't really lead me to stick in and stay committed to the journey that God's designed for me. But feelings are pronounced in a mountaintop experience. When Moses is on the mountaintop, man, he feels all those good feels. When the Israelites are on the bottom, they're like, man, we are inspired to be obedient to God because we are terrified of that thing which is surrounding Moses. All these feelings. And all of a sudden, the feelings pass, and the only thing that's producing behavior is no longer your feelings, but it's who you actually are. It's who you actually are. So there's an ingredient to this that's extremely important. And that's who are you becoming in the valley is everything. You see him on the mountaintop, but you become him in the valley. You don't become him here in this sanctuary. You see him here. You hear about him here. But you become him every single day and every single minute you walk with him. So I believe a really big part of this is to wait. Wait on God, say no to everything that you know isn't God. It shouldn't take long. Find some mentors that can poke holes in what you're saying. Find some people that'll say, okay, now, is this what you want to do or is this what God's telling you to do? Well, I just, you know, okay, cool. So that's what you want to do. <laughs> that's good. That's perfect. We, we found out. Like, that's, that's good. That's what you want to do. And I get it. I want to do things that aren't God's will all the time. All the time. 
I told, uh, I told Tom this morning, it was a confession time. I, I told him, I said, listen, Tom, most of the time I, I do things not because I'm a pastor, but I do character things just because I love good character. But every once in a while, small things, very, very small things, I, I, I really want to do them. And the thing that gets me to not do them is because I'm a pastor. And uh, I, was, so I was driving in Walmart this morning, and I, I had to get, I was before here, so it's quick. I got to get cough drops, so I don't just cough on the mic the whole time. And so there's this spot at the front. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not a handicapped spot because, you know, I, I, but it's a spot that's reserved for policemen. <laughs> I have just 10 of 10 respect for policemen. But I thought, you know what? It's going to be two minutes. The chances of a policeman needing this spot in the next two minutes is pretty low. I think I'll be all right. You know what I mean? And so I, I would have done it. But I was like, you know what, Sam? You're a pastor. You're a pastor, and you shouldn't park in this spot. You're a pastor, and it's important for you not to. So I didn't park in this spot. And every once in a while, there's just little small things like that. They're not big. You know what I mean? I don't not lie because I'm a pastor. I don't lie because I, don't, I, do, I have good character. You know, and I have integrity. But every once in a while, I don't park in a maternity spot. You know, or police. Because I think to myself, how horrible would it be if, you know, I walk back to my car and then somebody pregnant at the mountain wanted to park there and they had to waddle the whole way. So I don't park there because I'm being thoughtful of others and I'm being a pastor. And, and so that's my confession to Tom this morning. I don't really know how that connects to what we were talking about here, but it's a good story, I think. And there's these places, though, I've noticed is it's so important. So one, when it comes to between encounter and transformation, wait and say no to everything until God shows what is the way. Wait, say no to every other way and look for his way. Ask questions. And this is the humbling part of it, right? When you ask questions, have you ever had questions that you're like, this is so stupid I even have this question. I don't want to ask anybody. This is embarrassing. Have you ever had these questions and you didn't ask them because they're embarrassing? Well, see, now, the, the reason I'd say to ask them is because that embarrassment you're feeling, actually the very process of you asking it is a humbling journey. And what does God do with the humble? He gives grace to them. He gives them grace, which is the ingredient in the whole cook for you to become something different than just who you are. Grace is this actual empowering journey for you to become something different. So if you feel embarrassed by it, if you feel ashamed by it, even more so, ask the question. Or maybe Google it. That's way less humbling, but at least, at least you get it. You know what I mean? At least you get the answer. But I'd encourage you, find people that you could say, hey, hey, I don't even know what this looks like. I have these four options. Are these good? Are these God's way? I had an encounter, and I think he told me this. Well, what do I do? What is the way I'm supposed to go? And they'll have some good input if they're wise counsel. And the second thing I'd say to you is this, is, is, is not just pause and say no to all of the ways that aren't God and say yes to his way. But the second thing I'd tell you is this, is, is commitment. There, there's an ingredient of this walk with God that is just simply just be committed. Be committed, endure, have long suffering on this thing. And, and when, there, when it gets hard, 
and you know it's the will of God and you're walking in the will of God, but everything around you making it really hard, just endure. What would you have me do? Just endure. Just continue to walk. And you'll be surprised by the amount of strength that God supplies to you to walk in what he has intended for you to walk in. The difference between an encounter and a transformation is commitment. Will you stay? Will you stand? Will you endure? Will you have this this thing that begins to rise in you which says, this is awful. It's been 35, 40 days, and it appears to me hope has been snuffed out, and I want to go back to everything I've known. Don't. Stand. Endure a little bit longer. Stand. Fight. Push. Dig. Jump. Whatever your symbolism is at that point in your journey, whatever it is, hold out longer. You actually can. The Bible says that God won't tempt you beyond your capacity to endure. So there's this understanding that we have with God that as he's got us in these situations, he's creating something in us. He's literally creating something in us. And yes, the fire around you is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable, but it is fashioning a new form in you. It is creating structure inside of you that never existed before. It is producing it is producing the structure that is the law of God, that is righteousness. So whenever you encounter God, just know that it's a window into who you'll be at the other end of the journey, at the other end of your commitment. And a huge part of it is just simply, will you endure? Will you stay committed, even though you're just bumbling around mess of chaos and not sure what's going on? Anybody felt this way in the middle of being obedient to God? I think I feel this way every time I'm obedient to God. Because what happens? Here, I, I was an athlete, so I think of it as an athlete sometimes. I, I remember anybody play sports? Anybody do anything like physical where you, where you went from one level and then you jumped up and you went to another level? Did you notice that things you used to do at that level no longer work at that level? The same thing in music and any other business, everything. That when you go to the next level, there's things that just don't work anymore. I used to just crush it when I was 10, right hand. I was faster and stronger than everyone. So I just went right every time. I could score 60 points going right. It didn't matter. Next level, nope. If I just went right, I scored four points or I scored six points. There came a time where I had to learn to act and move and behave with my left hand. You know how uncomfortable it is to do something that you're not comfortable with? You look like a joker. You look like a clown. You're dribbling off your foot. It's embarrassing. You don't know how to do it well. You try and do in and outs and crossovers, and you're losing the ball. You're turning it over. You're acting like a buffoon, and you're embarrassed. Same thing with God. Here's an encounter. I'm introducing to you your left hand. And you're like, cool, God, I'm so about it. You fumble it off your foot, and you're like, that was a dumb idea. I don't know why God said that. I must have heard wrong. Because shame, embarrassment, and fear kicked in. You weren't excellent yet. You weren't refined yet. It was still going through the refining process, so you dropped the thing. This is a danger of being really mature. Sometimes we're, sometimes when we get really mature and we get really good at stuff, and community is just like, wow, come on. You're a good Christian. You're like an all-star Christian. You sing on the mic, your ties are great, you're just an all-star. You know, you're like, 
you're just incredible. You're crushing it in every way. You teach and it inspires us. It makes our jaws drop. You're just really amazing. And when you find yourself in a really mature spot that is like glorious in community, that's awe-inspiring, oftentimes it's actually in that spot that it's the hardest to just start dribbling with your left hand. Because people are like, oh, that's not that impressive anymore. You were a stud. You were a stud with your right hand. What happened? And then you're like, man, I don't know. And I don't even remember what it feels like to have behavior that's less than everybody else. Or an outcome that's less than everybody else. All of a sudden you're terrified of, the, of, of maturing the immature parts of you because it actually requires you to step into immaturity and to be there and to be vulnerable and to be humble. Guess what? This is where God transforms you. It's not just in perfecting your strengths so that you could be even more glorious in community. It's actually in your nakedness. It's in your vulnerability. It's in your barrenness that he begins to call you to walk with him. And sometimes the situation actually magnifies your inability and your lack. And you can't even make progress anymore. Just like the Israelites. The situation literally caused them to have no progress to stall out in their life. Uh, last story, and then I gotta finish. I, I started to do uh, dirt biking. And um, I did sports and all these things all my life, but I, I, I really wasn't an active, like, motor stuff, and, like, motorcycles just, it wasn't, I never did it because they didn't want me to get hurt. But I noticed when I started to uh, do it, uh, and then you would, you know, you'd stall out. Anybody ride bikes? You stall and so I got it a couple of times, and then you stall. And then when you stall like nine times in a row, you start getting embarrassed. And people are looking at you like, hey, did you need help? And you're like, no, I don't need help. I'm stalling on purpose. Uh, <laughs> this is intentional. I'm just testing the limits of the bike. Um, I'm used to other bikes, this bike, you know, something's wrong with the starter. The clutch, it's a little off, you know. Uh, and you start making, it, uh, making up stuff about the bike. <laughs> So, but you get to this place where you're like stalling and stalling and you're just like, the act of stalling is embarrassing. And you start to think to yourself, it would just actually be better if like no one was around and actually it'd be better if I wasn't here dirt biking. You know what I mean? Because this is embarrassing. And then what's funny about it is that you start to err on the other side. Have you ever done this when you were learning on a dirt bike or motorcycle? Is that you so crush the gas that you pop a wheelie or you flip on your back? Have you ever done this? I was so close to flipping on my back, you guys. I popped a wheelie, and it terrified me. The only thing that saved me was because I panicked and I let go of everything. <laughs> and so that was the only thing that saved me. But the reality is, is that when you're stalling out because God is calling you to something and you encountered something that you are not yet, stalling is a part of it. It's just an inherent part of your journey of going from encounter to being that which you encountered. You will stall, and it's actually a part of it. When in Psalms it talks about Selah, it's literally saying, stop, wait, think. Literally take it in and observe it. Meditate on it. Stop what you're doing and think. Because the pathway from encounter to transformation is commitment and is stalling. It's waiting. It's literally waiting. Saying no to everything else. Saying no to every alternative that will give you strength, that will be your means to get through it. Be committed, be committed in your life to only, to only having progress that God creates.
and saying no to all the other forms of progress.